You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. It was 1660, and a man by the name of Paul found himself in an overcrowded prison cell. He, a few years earlier, had felt the call to be a preacher of the gospel, but he was a Baptist, and in that time... Religious tolerance had not yet come to England, so you had to be a part of the Anglican Church in order to be ordained as a minister. However, this did not deter John, so standing against opposition, he continued to preach. And on one night, he was arrested and sentenced to three months in prison. But those three months, however, turned into 12 years in that prison cell suffering many sorrows along those many years. Now, you and I would have understood if John wanted to stop preaching or questioned God how he would allow such a hindrance in his life after having called him to preach. Twelve years is a long time. We often think of opposition this way. And John, instead, did something different. He took the time in that prison cell to write. He saw opposition as an opportunity. God's purpose of such opposition was probably not clear to John, and that's how it can be in our lives as well. We face opposition to the gospel personally, relationally, and culturally, and we wonder what God is doing in all of this. And this brings us to our text this morning. If you'd flip over to Acts chapter 4 with me, Acts 4. As we consider this text this morning, Acts 4, the first 22 verses, we will encounter something incredibly relevant for our lives, for the challenges that we now may be facing or will soon face. I believe if we understand what's in this text, then we as a church and as individual church members will be well prepared for the coming days when we face opposition. For in our text, we find the apostles, specifically Peter and John, facing opposition to the gospel message and work, and specifically opposition to the spread of the church. This opposition comes from the religious leaders, and Luke, the author of Acts, is showing that the the clear rejection of those Jewish leaders of the gospel. He's doing this for several reasons, but the reason I want to consider this morning is that the rejection and opposition towards the gospel can never hinder the spread of the gospel. The opposition and rejection of the gospel can never hinder the spread of the gospel. Rather, God allows it as an opportunity. Opposition is the way. One of the means that God uses to spread his message to the world, and we witness this in Acts. For if you think about it, in the early church, it was the means by which the gospel went from Jerusalem to Samaria, and beyond. This text is clear that this happened because the church began to face opposition. In fact, there's four waves of opposition, and in our text, we find the first wave that Luke records. I remember a few years ago, a book came out where the author had this idea in mind. The obstacle in the path becomes the path. The obstacle in the path becomes the path. And if you and I are honest, that's not how we typically think. 
We see opposition or an obstacle as, not as the path, but as something in the way. So in Acts, we've seen this explosive growth of the church, incredible growth. The apostles are preaching and many have believed. We have witnessed great power. A lame man has just been healed, and then Peter is preaching the gospel, a clear gospel presentation, repent and believe. But suddenly, everything screeches to a halt in the chapter before us. And it's easy to think that this narrative that we're going to read is an obstacle to what God is accomplishing, but that's not how Luke describes it. Look down at verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. And as they were speaking, so our text picks up right on the heels of Peter's sermon in chapter 3. Peter and John were suddenly confronted by the captain of the temple. This is the individual who's in charge of keeping order in the temple and the Sadducees. And the text says that they came upon them, meaning they suddenly approached. And verse 2 gives the reason for their opposition. They were greatly annoyed. And you can imagine the religious leaders observing the last few days. In their time, they had become indignant or angry at the favorable response of the people. Thousands are believing. And now they've had enough. They could not put up with it any longer, so they approached the apostles. And why are they so bothered? Well, it says because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. That is, they were saying that it was through Jesus that the resurrection was to take place. And if you know anything about the Sadducees or remember what Luke says later in his um, uh, book, he says, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. Apparently, this group denied the final resurrection of the dead. So you can understand why the gospel would be offensive to that group. Because not only does the gospel place its hope in the final resurrection, but its core figure, Jesus, was the one who had already risen from the dead. The results of this encounter are Peter and John are seized. They, they laid their hands on them and imprisoned them. But since it was evening, they waited until the morning for the hearing. Look at verse 5 and 6. Who's coming against them? It's the Jewish leaders of the day. Verse 5, on the next day, their rulers, that's the Sanhedrin, and the elders and scribes, or Pharisees, gathered together in Jerusalem. So here's significant. This is where the gospel was to first take hold, in Jerusalem. And so they meet opposition here in this city. Verse 6, with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, he's the current high priest, and John, and Alexander, and all who are of the high priestly family. This family is the family that controlled the priesthood for the last few decades. So these details are important in Luke's narrative. They reveal that all the religious establishment came to this event. The same group that just recently condemned Jesus shows up against Peter and John. And remember the disagreements among these various groups? They're united in one purpose, stopping the preaching of the crucified Messiah. So Peter and John, you can just envision it. They're standing in their midst. That is, it's a half circle, and there they are standing in the middle. In the rest of the sermon, we're going to consider their response. Four aspects of their response that help us see opposition as the way. Before we do that, I just want to consider two ideas. The first idea is what we're talking about is opposition to the gospel. 
opposition to the gospel, not just suffering in general. That is, Peter and John were arrested because they were giving the message of the gospel clearly to those who would listen. The result is Satan brought opposition against them. And that should not be surprising to us. Jesus again and again spoke of those who would persecute you. In John 15, he says, they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So we should expect opposition as Christians. So perhaps you're here and you're already facing that opposition. You should be encouraged already this morning. For some of us, maybe we should consider another possibility. Maybe the reason we're not facing opposition is that we're not standing for the gospel. The message of the gospel is offensive not only to non-religious, but also to our supposedly religious society. And the more we face a post-Christian world, the more we should expect this kind of suffering, the suffering that Peter and John face here. And let's see the text preparing us then for the opposition that we will face in the future. This is a text that will help us when we face opposition. The second idea is that the advance of the gospel cannot be stopped. It cannot be stopped. Look down at verse 4. We skipped over it. Luke says, But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Again, it's hard to fathom as 3,000 believed in chapter 2, and then now you have this almost as a side note, a mention that there are over 5,000 men, which is another way of saying households, that the response to the preaching is overwhelming. 5,000 plus have come to faith. No wonder the leaders in the temple were upset, because here's the truth. Opposition does not mean God has stopped working. Quite the opposite. They faced opposition, but many believed, Luke says. Remember what Paul said about his imprisonment in Philippians 1, chapter 12. He talks about his imprisonment had the opposite of its intended effect. Instead of squelching the gospel... The gospel had actually prospered in his imprisonment. The New Testament sees opposition as the way, and that should embolden us this morning. So the challenge is pretty clear for us, too, to view opposition as the way or the opportunity for the gospel to progress. Now, I see that our text has four reminders as we face opposition, four reminders as we face opposition. Opposition reminds us to rely on the Spirit, it reminds us to recognize Jesus is at work. It, it reminds us to anticipate rejection. And it reminds us to remain on mission. So let's reflect on the first one. Opposition to the gospel reminds us to rely on the Spirit. Look at verse uh, 7. And when they had set them in the, the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. So opposition is an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to guide us. How is Peter going to handle this situation? What does the text say? It says he's filled with the Spirit. Here we have a reminder that's the Spirit that gives Peter the answer to these religious leaders. He does not rely on his own strength. He is filled with the Spirit. This is a direct fulfillment of Jesus' words in the Gospel. Listen to what Luke 12 says, verse 11 and 12. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So here before the rulers, the Holy Spirit guides Peter, teaching him what he ought to say. 
And we could say the Spirit speaks through Peter. The Holy Spirit temporarily enables him to sovereignly fulfill God's purposes, specifically testifying to Jesus. And that should, for us, eliminate much fear that we feel. Jesus says, don't be anxious. Why? Because the Holy Spirit will guide you when testifying, like, like, just like in this text, as we see with Peter. Think of Jesus' words in Matthew 10, 18 through 20. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So think uh, regarding Peter. Think back. Perhaps he's standing there and his memory falls back to the few, a few days earlier when Jesus stood before the same assembly. Would he meet the same fate that Jesus met? Crucified. Or think about how in just a few days earlier, he had stood before a little girl and denied his Lord three times. How would he respond this time? Yet here he is standing with boldness, we'll see in a minute. And you could see how he was supplied with confidence. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit. This should encourage us because it doesn't necessarily matter then what your record is regarding standing for Christ. You may have failed to stand for him in certain situations, just like Peter. But now Peter is given a second chance, a chance to stand in the face of opposition. You can stand firm by the Spirit. The reality is that all of us here who believe, who are in Jesus, have the indwelling Spirit inside of us. And so we can walk in the Spirit. We can listen to Jesus and his word, and we can live in community with others by the Spirit. So that means that we can live out our faith in front of our neighbors, our fellow students, our coworkers. So stay in the scriptures and pray. Oh, Father, send your spirit to help when we face opposition. And the truth here is you are not alone when you're facing opposition to the gospel. You're not alone. I remember growing up, we had this place right by our house where it was just this little wooded area, and there's a path that had to go right through. I remember if you were by yourself, it was a pretty scary place to walk through as a kid. But it's amazing, it didn't matter who it was. If there was someone else with you, you didn't have any of those same fears. The truth is, you always have the Spirit with you. So no matter what you face, He's with you to guide you. So that's the first thing we find in our text, the reminder to rely on the Spirit. The second is to recognize that Jesus Christ is at work, that Jesus is at work. Peter answers the question uh, that was asked at the end of verse 7 by saying this. Look down at the end of verse 7. By what power or by what name did you do this? He responds in the middle of verse 8. Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. 
So it's here we find the core truth to settle us when we face opposition. And that is this, that Jesus is at work. The sign done the day before was done by Christ. By him, that is Jesus, the lame man is standing before you well. Let it be known. It's almost as if Peter responds sarcastically and then says, you know who is working. It's Jesus, the one that you just crucified. He is still working. It's Jesus who is the Messiah of Nazareth, who you crucified, the same group that condemned Jesus. You killed Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. This Jesus is alive and working among his people. And it's here that Peter quotes Psalm 118, verse 22, saying Jesus is the stone that the religious leaders rejected, and now he is the cornerstone. So what is Peter doing with this quote? Essentially, he's saying to them, you discarded Jesus. That is thinking that when you crucified Jesus, you beat him, humiliated him, killed him, that it would end with him. But even though you rejected this Jesus, God, through the resurrection, vindicated him, making him the foundation, the corner piece of a new temple. And that temple language here shows this is the way the temple is supposed to be. The temple is a place where real healing takes place, the temple of God's people, the church. And then he makes the statement in verse 12. There it is. Look at it. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's necessary to come through Jesus. The exclusive way that anyone comes to God is through his son, Jesus. Jesus is the only way. This statement is, in one sense, an invitation for the religious leaders to embrace the Savior. The name that just saved the lame man physically is the only name that can save anyone spiritually. Peter sees one, one man's physical salvation as a picture of spiritual salvation offered to all in Christ. No other name under heaven. And the Bible makes this claim that Jesus is the only way of salvation the exclusive way that one comes to God. And, and apparently, this, the church, the early church, took these claims very seriously. And it makes sense, at least in this regard. If you think of it, Jesus, if there was other, another way, Jesus would not have needed to go to the cross and die. And this is why, as a church, we are so determined to go, and the early church determined to go. Because we believe that all men are condemned under sin unless... They hear and believe on this name, the name of Jesus. Now, you may be here and you're, you're thinking, what I'm saying right now is narrow-minded or perhaps arrogant or offensive, hateful even. But I want you first to know that these things, we say these things because we believe them to be true. We believe them to be true, found in the Bible. So some might think that a statement like this is very unloving, but actually, on the contrary, if we believe it to be true, this is the most loving thing we can do is to tell others about this name, Jesus Christ, and how you can find fullness of joy knowing the Savior of the world. Find what we have found in the gospel. We want to share it with others. So I invite you to turn and repent and turn to Jesus today. For believers, I see this helps us in two ways when facing opposition. 
It gives us confidence that Jesus is working even when it feels like we're hitting obstacles. It's not as though the church today lacks the power and the name of Jesus Christ. He is alive and working, and so we can rejoice and rest in the work that Christ is doing among us. I thought back of the Chronicles of Narnia, the lion, witch, and the wardrobe, when the beaver says, Aslan is on the move. We can have confidence as believers that Jesus is on the move. Second, it creates urgency for us. It's necessary for someone to know God. It's necessary for them to come by means of Jesus alone. And that's why the mission is so important. These religious leaders may have been ignorant or just wanted to hear from Peter and, and John, but they left this court. They left this courtroom having heard the good news. And we want this, to, this message of Jesus crucified and risen, we want to take it to the ends of the earth. So do you feel this urgency? Are you weekly sharing the gospel with other people? It's a question we all should ask and pray even now that the Lord would open doors. So it's clear that there's two groups here, right? Those who reject and those who believe. So if you're here and you have not embraced Christ, consider the grace given to you in this message. God graciously is giving those who condemned Jesus, another chance. He's giving them another chance to hear Jesus and embrace the truth. And today, he may be giving you another chance to embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior and believe on his name. So there's first two. We've seen that opposition, opposition helps us to rely on the Spirit. Opposition helps us to recognize that Jesus is at work. And, and, second, and third, Wow. And third, opposition helps us remember to anticipate rejection. To anticipate rejection. Look at verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness, that is the unhindered courage of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished, that is they were amazed, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who, had healed, who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. They deliberated, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So observe what the religious leaders knew. They had heard the gospel clearly. They had perceived the boldness of the apostles. They discerned their lack of rabbinical training, these no formal training. They observed the eloquence of these ordinary men, no experts in the law. They recognized that they had been with Jesus, and they acknowledged that a notable sign had been done with the healing of this lame man, who apparently is now standing next to Peter and John. And yet, with all that, they still did not believe. Instead, their impulse was to suppress the truth, that their message may no, spread no further. Maybe they had a wish to retain power or influence, but whatever their reasons, they chose to reject the apostles' message. And this is a good reminder to us for a number of reasons. First, it reminds us that the gospel results are not in our hands. Even when we present the gospel and when the Holy Spirit is empowering us, 
even when we boldly proclaim the truth, even when it's clear that God is at work, even when there's miracles are happening, people are being transformed, and we've spent time with Jesus, even then some will still choose to reject the gospel. Some will still try to suppress the good news, and this should not surprise us, and it should not deter us. Perhaps you're here, brother and sister, and you find yourself struggling with what's called a savior complex. Listen to this word for you. The gospel results are not in your hands. Jesus is the savior. You cannot save them, but Jesus can. So keep inviting them to Jesus. Keep showing them Jesus. And let the burden of being someone else's savior fall from your shoulders. The gospel, it also reminds us here, when we anticipate rejection, and the gospel, again, cannot be stopped. The religious leaders sought to halt the spread of the gospel, but oh, how they failed. Within years, the gospel will have spread to thousands and across countries and continents. The gospel is unstoppable, and that should give us hope this morning. Nothing can stop the work of Christ. I remember my dad telling this story, or he tells this story, about a time when he was in sixth grade. He was across the street from his house hanging out with a couple of friends, and they had this 50-gallon barrel um, that they had. It was a fire barrel, and they were throwing trash in there and burning it. And uh, his friends, who were in seventh graders, two of them, um, were there, and what they were doing is they rolled up a newspaper, and they would put the newspaper in the fire, and then they'd go over to a field, and they'd light a little bit of the field, and then they'd stomp it out. It was kind of just a fun activity. And so my dad said, hey, you know, can I, my dad was like, can I give it a try? And you know, whenever you're older, you're like, no, you're not old enough to do this. And so they said, no, you can't do it. It's not safe. Well, their parents uh, called them in for dinner. And so these two boys wander off, and there you have my dad standing there with a rolled up newspaper and this big fire barrel. So my dad says, it can't be that difficult. So he, puts the, he lights the uh, newspaper and then lights the field. And it grows a little bit, and he stomps it out. He says, wow, this, this is a piece of cake. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to show those guys. I'm going to let this fire grow. And so sure enough, he lights the fire, and he lets it grow. The problem was, when he went to stomp, the fire didn't stomp out. Instead, sparks flew and this field suddenly began to, to just engulf in flame. And it was way beyond, he tried to stomp it out, but it was way beyond his control. So now he had to figure out what to do. And like you would probably, he thought, I need to run. Well, he thought it'd be bad if he was running, you know, to his house. And in the background, his dad, his dad and brothers were working on a car in the front yard or the front driveway. He thought it'd be bad if they look up and there's my dad running towards them with this huge flame in the background. So he had the genius idea to go around to the neighbor's house, cross the yard, cross the driveway, and then come from the backyard. So right as he's coming up from the backyard, uh, the, his two brothers see the fire and they suddenly say, we got to go help. So they grab shovels or rakes or whatever, and they go over to stop this fire. My, my grandpa, my dad's dad, just stood there, just looking at the fire. And he had heard uh, my dad walk up. And he turned to my dad and he said, Jim, did you start that fire? And my dad says, how could I have started it? I came from the backyard. I, how could I start it? He's like, I didn't ask where you came from. I said, did you start that fire? For what my dad had failed to consider 
is that stomping around in a field that has flames leaves your clothes all <laughs> singed and smell like smoke. So he didn't get away with that um, little trick. The thing I wanted to point out about that story is actually back to the flames. The flames illustrate how the gospel works. The more that my dad tried to stomp out the fire, the more it spread. And it's the exact same thing with the gospel. The more that those who seek to oppose the gospel try to stomp it out, to halt it, they're actually spreading it. And that's a truth that should encourage us whenever we face opposition. The last one is that, the, that this reminds us when we anticipate rejection that, the gospel, that God can use anyone. God can use anyone. I love what they say. The power of Christ can work through you regardless of education or influence. These are common men. And yet God used those common men to spark the entire world with the gospel. So far we've been reminded of facing opposition to rely on the Spirit, to recognize Christ is at work, to anticipate rejection, and now we go to number four, and that is Opposition is an opportunity or a way that reminds us to remain on mission. The last encouragement in our text is that opposition firms our commitment to the mission that Christ has given us. It works to solidify our response so that you do what you've been called to do. Look down again once more at our text, verse 18. So they called them and charged or ordered or commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it, is right, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So the religious leaders command Peter and John to stop teaching and preaching in the name of Jesus. And their response is staggering. First, they say, judge for yourself. Judge for yourself, meaning you decide. Should we listen to you? Or should we listen to God? And as for us, there's no question. We can't keep silent about what we've seen or heard. We will obey God, and it's implied that we'll obey God no matter what the cost. No matter what you do right now, we are going to obey God. It's impossible for us not to speak of what we've seen and heard. We, like the apostles, are compelled to proclaim what we've seen and what we've heard. And why can't they be silent? Well, it's because they were witnesses to the living Christ. Luke is showing again how this commission that Jesus gave, him, gave them in Acts 1.8 is taking place. Jesus said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Here they are witnesses. First John tells us that from the very first day, the apostles were taking it all in. They heard it with their own eyes. They saw it with their own eyes. Heard it with their own ears. Saw it with their own eyes. Verified with their own hands. The word of life appeared right before their eyes. They saw it happen. And now the apostles were tell telling other people what they had witnessed. And this is what it was, that God himself took shape before us, lived a perfect life, and was crucified and rose from the dead. His heart began to beat again. And he can give life and salvation to all who call upon his name. And as it was written in Luke... And Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. 
You are witnesses of these things. Here's the point for us. Opposition forces us to make a decision. It has a way of solidifying what really matters. It's like a diamond. It first begins as carbon. And when heat and pressure are applied, it's over the same time, it solidifies into a beautiful gem. Opposition acts like heat and pressure. It puts pressure on us and creates a stronger commitment to Christ. And this happens when we are forced to answer these kind of questions. Do we obey God or men? Do we fear men more than we fear God? Are we speaking of what we've seen or heard? And we reply that we cannot keep silent. Now, if we're honest, many things get in the way of our mission. Fear, pride, hurt. Some things that are good get in the way. Family, sports, job, money, trips, ease. Perhaps what we need is to take these to God and ask the question, what's distracting me? What's distracting us from the mission to take the gospel to the world? See, the mission of declaring the gospel to sinners is not complete. This morning, we continue this mission, and it remains for us the same today as it was then. We are witnesses, and sometimes we complicate things, but really what our commission is this, to bear witness to what we've seen and heard, to tell others what's been done in Jesus, in our lives and here among us, to tell others what we've experienced just like the early church did. And last, they threatened them further. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go finding no way to punish them because of the people. Sounds a lot like when Jesus was, uh, when they were trying to arrest Jesus. For all were glorifying God or praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. It was incredible, a miracle. Altogether, we've seen opposition reminds us to rely on the Spirit, to recognize Jesus is at work, to anticipate rejection, and to remain on mission. Remembering these helps us, just like the apostles, to view opposition not as a detour or an obstacle, but as the way. Remember the preacher in the introduction named John. His full name was John Bunyan. And that imprisonment that went from three months to 12 years, that imprisonment was a time that he spent writing what became his most famous work, The Pilgrim's Progress. Outside of the Bible, no other English work has had such widely read, has been so widely read for so long a period of time. It's considered one of the greatest works in the English language. It's been translated in over 200 other languages. This beautiful allegory has had a lasting impact on the world. So we could say that the opposition that Bunyan faced was God's way to have Bunyan impact millions with the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we know that, as Jesus said, just as um, they persecuted your, your son, so they will persecute us. And so we prepare our hearts this morning for opposition to the gospel. That if we face it, that we'll be ready to stand with the boldness that we see in Peter and John. And we've been reminded this morning of how to do that. And I pray that you would help us. Help us this morning stand strong for your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.